As runners, we probably all remember a time when we had to take walking breaks because we were just not able to run continuously. For me, it was when I was about 14 and joined a running team for the first time during cross-country season. I was a swimmer before that, and although I considered myself an athlete, I just couldn't keep up with the other runners. Luckily, there was another girl that had joined around the same time, and she was a soccer player. As soon as we would turn the corner to the area where we were out of the coach's view, we would start walking. Once I became a quote-unquote real runner, I stopped taking walk breaks, and when I went on to run my first marathon, I didn't even think walking during a race was an option. I figured it would just make me slower. Well, in today's book, I learned that Bill Rogers won the 1975 Boston Marathon in a time of 2.09.55, and he walked several times during the marathon. Hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review running books to help you decide if you would like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your own running or maybe inspire you to try something new. My name is Liz and with my co-host Alan, we are going to talk with author Hal Higdon about his book, Marathon, The Ultimate Training Guide, 5th Edition. So let me give you a brief overview of the book. Marathon, The Ultimate Training Guide is in its 5th edition and the original version came out in 1993. This book is solely dedicated to training and preparing to run the half marathon or marathon distance. The book covers the entire marathon journey from the very beginning stages where someone is starting to run and maybe not even sure they will love the sport to tapering and race day logistics. In between that, Hal covers a lot of topics that runners might have questions about, such things as building mileage, diet, speed work, cross training, heart rate training, qualifying for Boston, and many other subjects. The book ends with training programs for, for anyone from a novice to an advanced runner, both for the half marathon and for the marathon distance. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today, Hal Higdon. He's the author of 35 books and hundreds of articles for a variety of magazines, including Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, News, New York Times Magazine, etc. He's a contributing editor for Runner's World, he was among the founders of the Roadrunners Club of America. He was a finalist in the competition Become NASA's Journalist in Space. He received the Career Achievement Award from the American Society of Journalists and Authors. He has a website, halhigdon.com, which ranks among the top 20 running websites in the world. Hal's not only a great writer and journalist, but he has a wealth of running experience as well. has completed, completed over 100 marathons and coached countless runners to many improvement times at all levels. Welcome to the podcast, Hal. I'm glad to be here. Look forward to talking to both of you. That's great. Usually when we start these podcasts, we start with the same, uh, the same question, which is, you know, what prompted the writing of this book? I guess you might not remember because it was so long ago in 1993, but what started the idea for the book and how come it's made it all this way to the fifth edition? Yeah, I never would have imagined that that would happen, but it, it did. Um, I got going on this book partly because Rodale, the publishers of Rudder's World, uh, asked me to do a book on the 10K, uh, and we called that book Run Fast, and it sold a lot of copies, so uh, we talked about it and said, well, we've covered the 10K, why don't we do a book 
on the marathon and we'll call it Run Long. And so I, I wrote that book and then at the end, the publishers changed the name to Marathon, the Ultimate Training Guide. And I was sort of offended because I thought Run Long was a pretty good, pretty good accurate name. But in the retrospect, they were right and I was wrong. And, and the book has, uh, had, has a lot of legs, a lot lasting long. And I would say that of those five editions, it's almost like each one was rewritten. Uh, the current uh, edition, the fifth edition, there's almost very little comparison with the fourth edition. You know, I added a few chapters, taken a few out, and um, the book has sort of grown along with me and had a, uh, a good, good history of success. And while you wouldn't call it a bestseller for the New York Times based on sales for last week, when you stretch it out over 30 years, we probably sold about a half a million copies and inspired certainly at least that many runners to, to run. Otherwise, why would they have laid out all that money for a book by this guy, uh, Hal Higdon? So, of course, things have changed uh, in the years since it first came along. Um, I remember using a, a electric typewriter almost back then, and now we're into the internet and we have uh, books and training programs. I've got an app that uh, run, run with Hal that uh, people can follow my training programs, a website with a lot of free programs on it that halhigdon.com that anybody can uh, visit and without even having to pay me a nickel start running. So it's been a pleasure to be part of what I would consider a, uh, a, a major running boon in your country and mine. It's amazing how how many things have changed since 1993. It's uh, it's uh, it must have been very different to write that first edition. Um, what are some of the things that you ended up adding to the fifth edition that maybe weren't there in the others? Well, injury prevention. Um, I did I did a whole chapter on what we would call aqua running, um, working partly with uh, a friend of mine uh, who I used to coach when she was in high school, believe it or not. She went on to be a pretty good uh, scholarship runner, got second in the Indiana State Cross Country Championships, and then uh, got a degree in podiatry and works as a podiatrist on the, uh, in Chicago. Her name is Megan Leahy. And uh, basically, I now learn from her as much as I learned, as she learned from me. So uh, I've been trying to pick up on all the things that are current and running. Um, for instance, uh, Ultra running is now becoming more and more popular. Uh, people mm -hmm. who run not nearly 50 miles or 50 kilometers, but 50 miles, 100 miles, and across whole deserts. So uh, there have been changes in the sports, and basically the ch changes of the attitudes of people in the sport. Uh, certainly the involvement of running. I was uh, at Boston the year the first. Uh, woman runner, bandit runner, jumped out of the bushes and uh, went 26 miles, 385 yards, when none of the old men figured that a uh, woman could ever run past a couple of miles. In fact, they were prohibited from running that far for fear that their uteruses would drop. But we finally uh, <laughs> came around to the point where really women are driving our sport um, uh, these days. 70% of the people who uh, visit my website, for instance, are female runners, they're a little bit smarter than the men, and uh, they take education very, very, very well. So it's been a pleasure to be part of the revolution, which is still continuing even at this moment. 
So I guess uh, before we get into the details of training for a marathon, you start the book by explaining uh, that the, you know, the marathon is kind of a special distance and that one of the best experiences you will ever have is your first marathon. And you tell us that we should actually choose it carefully, which is the opposite of what I did. I just, I just was like, well, I'm going to try this marathon thing. Which one is in my city? <laughs> so, um, so why would you, why would you say that people should, um, you know, maybe take more care in choosing what their first marathon will be? Well, because I learned from my own errors. And uh, back when I was a young kid, uh, I realized that I wasn't going to uh, make it onto the Olympic team in the 1500 meters. So I better switch events up uh, through the 3000 meter steeplechase to the 5000 and 10,000 and finish in the top five of a couple of Olympic trials at 10,000 meters. And the next place was a big jump onto the, the marathon stage itself. And I made one uh, major error when I went to the Boston Marathon in uh, 1959, good grief am I that old. Uh, I tried to win the race, not to finish the race. And so with that attitude, the bad attitude, running Boston the following year and also running Culver City, the first three marathons I started, I failed to finish. And I would be leading the race up to even as far as 22 miles and all of a sudden, boom, I would totally crash because we hadn't heard about sports drinks at back that time. They didn't even hand out water, much less sports drinks at the Boston Marathon. Uh, you might get a, a slice of orange, but that was it. So uh, I sort of learned as I was going, it took me really five years under a good uh, coach, uh, Fred Wilt, who was a uh, Olympic um, member for the United States at the uh, 10,000 meters in uh, 48 and 52. And we finally figured out the training uh, that worked in a marathon. And so I was sort of learning as I went and uh, had success uh, uh, at the marathon, finished first a marathon, excuse me, first American in the marathon was uh, fifth place. Uh, uh, third place was a good friend of mine, Ron Wallingford of Canada, uh, who was one of the directors of the Olympic marathon when it was in Toronto. So uh, it took me a while to figure out uh, what running was like and in the interim period of running became a pretty big sport. The first year I ran Boston, for instance, there were only 150 runners in the race. Uh, 10 years, a decade later, we were up to a thousand and the Boston Athletic Association was talking about putting qualifying standards because they didn't figure they could handle that many uh, runners on the course. Of course, now they limit the, the number of Boston to 30,000 runners and New York, Chicago, Berlin, uh, uh, Tokyo, the major races, um, they, they have 40,000, 50,000 runners and handle, handle it very well. Wow. And uh, when, when Boston existed in those early years, like what was it like? Because I went to Boston only once in 2011. And I, I mean, the whole road is closed because I guess you have no choice because there's there's, like you said, 30,000 runners. And so the road is just closed the whole way. And you just have the runners are just all packed together, but the road is pretty wide. So how was it when it first started? Um, like, was it, was the road closed or, or did the, was the route different? Horses on the track. <laughs> I <think laughs> you remember that the first Boston Marathon was actually started in Ashland, a couple of miles down the road from Hopkinton. 
uh, the distance was, I don't know, 24 or 25 miles, uh, because who cared back then? The official distance had not been had pinned down to 26 miles, 385 yards, uh, the distance run of the 1912 Olympics in, in London. So, uh, yeah, there were bikes on the road and um, coaches seconding their, their runners by uh, providing, uh, 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 not bourbon, but, uh, you know, various alcoholic drinks to, to pep them up as well. So, uh, and this, this went on for 10, 20, 30 years, but pretty much uh, the police did a pretty good job of shutting the Boston streets, uh, although not as well as they do now. In fact, I remember in uh, 19, I'm thinking of the number, 1964, the year I uh, finished fifth place, uh, I was in the last few miles and there were cars on the course with me. So, you know, if, if there were that many cars on the course with me alone, runner because we had split off by that time. Um, you know, I wondered what would happen to the, the runners in the back, but uh, the, the, the race got bigger and bigger and more popular and got some, the race directors who really figured out what they had to do to be able to fit 30,000 runners on the, on the course. So uh, we've come a long, long, long way. And the runner running itself, the marathon has become some sort of a cultural thing, not merely in, Canada or the United States, but all over uh, the world. So uh, when you got a, a race with 50,000 runners and they come in, they fly in, they uh, get in hotels, they eat dinners in the Italian uh, North End in Boston, spend a lot of money. So it's uh, the sport is pretty popular, at least one day of the year uh, for cities like New York, Boston. They, they love the runners and it's, it's just a great uh, activity to, to be part of. And there's still some tiny little races too that nobody's ever heard of. So there's a great blend in the, in, in the sport these days. Probably listening to, to us now, probably most of the people who are listening to us are runners of some type, but not necessarily marathon runners. And it could be that they're sort of thinking, oh, marathon, that's a rite of passage. One day I want to do a marathon. And so they've got in their head the idea of, you know, maybe getting themselves uh, ready for a marathon at some stage or taking on a marathon. What sort of key advice would you give these people who are maybe just beginning to think about possibly getting an, into a marathon? Well, just to be patient, because I think you want to put a marathon on, on your bucket list, something that you might get around to eventually. And uh, a lot of runners, for that matter, I'd say a majority of runners, the ones that I see running on the lakefront in Chicago or on the lakefront in front of my house in Long Beach, Indiana, a lot of these people never run a race and they don't even show up to the race. So uh, you try to motivate them just to get involved in running, make it part of a uh, lifestyle and hope that you can maybe catch them a little way. I, I might talk about my grandson, Jake Higdon, uh, who's an environmentalist, works in Washington, D.C., and uh, I knew he was training for a half marathon, but I wasn't even sure when the race was until all of a sudden I got a text message from Jake saying he had run uh, an hour and 24 minutes, which is a fairly impressive time. It's certainly the near equivalent of that three hour full marathon that is, is your goal. So I think one of the things that changed a lot uh, during the publication of my book, we go back to 1993 as the, the begin date for the book, the 30 years that have gone on since then. I think back then, a lot of people jumped into the marathon. It was their first uh, race ever. They hadn't even run a 5K, 10K. I think that's 
less true today. Uh, I think uh, the entry level to a race is, is a 5K. But the other thing is, is that so many people are running half marathons these days as preparation for a marathon, whether they, they do it or not, just like, like Jake. And, um, and so I think my training programs back at this time, I would usually put in in the 18 week period around week or nine, 10, I'd suggest that they, if not run a race a half marathon, go out and at least run the distance. So you have a little bit of an idea of what you can go at the point. So I think the, the half marathon has come along and uh, it's, it's extremely popular uh, race, particularly with women runners. They've sort of taken it over as themselves. I think uh, the, the numbers would suggest when I saw them several years ago, it was 60% women in the half marathon and 40% men it may have stretched even further than that. I, I mentioned the fact that we have a majority of, of women that, uh, that visit my website off the demographics uh, that we, we, we can trace. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, about having a half marathon in the middle of a training program. I've just recently started coaching uh, a novice marathon runner and um, I just finished reading your book. And uh, so what I did is I gave her a half marathon race in the middle of her, pl of her plan, dropped it in there, much in the way that your, your training programs suggest. And she hasn't run her marathon yet, so we won't know what whether the proof of the pudding is is in the eating. But um, certainly after she ran that, she was absolutely bouncing with confidence because she put in a, a good performance Okay, it's, it's only a half marathon distance, but I think she exceeded her own expectations. And now she feels like she's on target for her marathon goal. Whereas before she was very much, well, I'm not sure, I don't know. Now she's saying, wow, this is really doable. And she has this, this proof. Uh, it's not a complete proof, but it's, it's, it's a sure big confidence builder for her uh, with respect to her marathon coming up uh, at the end of next month. Well, I think that's interesting, too. I don't know if Jake is going to go ahead and run another marathon. It's the last thing I would push him into doing. Um, but the fact is, is that, you know, it might be on his agenda. It might not. Um, we have uh, three children, my wife and I, a boy, a second boy and a girl. Well, she's no longer a girl. And uh, the oldest uh, boy was a gifted runner. He ran a 218 marathon, qualified for the Olympic trials. And the the, uh, the female member of the Higdon family uh, was a fun runner and uh, wasn't coming close to doing the Olympic trials. And the, and the one in the middle was a tennis player, by gosh. I wasn't sure how I uh, gave the genetics to have a successful <laughs> tennis player in the family, but uh, he's now uh, up in his age. And before I realize it, he, he's telling me that he's going out for uh, runs as far as 12 miles. And uh, that's a pretty good uh, workout for a non non runner who's still mm -hmm. ever run as a, mm -hmm. a race. And I don't know if he, he'll ever get into a, a racing that distance, but but it will. I guess I'm fortunate in having a family with some of them run, some of them don't. Uh, I've got a, another grandson down in Houston works for NASA, and uh, his his girlfriend was going to run the marathon half marathon for the first time, and Natalia was her name. And I looked at her splits after I saw them, uh, and she had run each mile within three or four seconds. And there wow. wasn't a single mile in the whole race that she did that was that far off. And I thought, wow, she really nailed that. And then I discovered that uh, my grandson was pacing her. So it was his perfect pace that, 
brought her into a very, very successful time. She ran, I believe, an hour and 54 minutes in her first half marathon. So we all have our moments of glory where we stand on the, the pedestal and uh, just like an Olympic champion, have the, the uh, medal hung around your neck and uh, and uh, it becomes an important part of our life. It sounds like in your family, you have proof that like people do like running and sometimes it has nothing to do with racing or even, you know, being first or, or anything like that, or even close to the podium. Um, it's just, they, they just start to like to run at some point, but most people, when they start running, they, they don't really like it. Uh, so how, I don't know, how does this transition happen? Well, you just sort of try to make it as easy as possible for them. And I, when people come up to me at an expo, for instance, and ask for my advice, a last minute tip uh, before the big race the next day, I tell them very simply, start slow. And that's probably true if you're going to take your first few running steps. It just starts slow. Don't feel that you have to hit any preconceived goal or time goal and just get out and do it and make it as easy as possible. Uh, walk if necessary. There's nothing wrong with, with walking as you've already expressed. And so uh, get a, in it slow and if possible, get involved in a club or with a partner and have a mutual goal. And uh, even if the mutual goal is only to run a mile around a park uh, in your local neighborhood. A friend of mine started that way, trying to struggle to get through that full mile for the first time. And when he he did it, he was like he had won the Olympic marathon. And uh, he went on to do his marathons and even to coach other runners. So, you know, you sort of, you begin very, very, Shortly, and you, you try to not make the, all the mistakes that I made when I was a runner. One of the best coaches I know, uh, Bill Wenmark, up in the Twin Cities of uh, Minnesota, uh, decided he was a hockey player uh, for most of his uh, young young life. So you can up in Canada, you can sort of appreciate that. And um, so he he decided he wanted to run the Twin Cities Marathon. Well, the problem was the Twin Cities Marathon was only going to be in three weeks. So he had only three weeks to train or to not train. But anyway, he went ahead and he got in the race and uh, he made it through to the finish line. And then he got into the car and he had to drive home in third gear all the way because he didn't have enough strength left in his legs to push the clutch (laughs) pedal. If clutch pedals exist anymore. So, but then he went on to having made that first marathon, he went and did it right and become a really effective coach for, uh, a lot of runners, he, he some of the classes would have near 100 people participate. He, he made other runners and also basically, like I do, don't make the mistakes that I made. Take more than three weeks to train for the big race. I guess one of the things that you're really telling us, and you, you mentioned start slow uh, frequently during your book as good advice, but maybe that um, beginner runners are often overly ambitious too quickly in their program and need to have a little bit more patience, perhaps? Well, I think that certainly is true. So, you know, one of, first of all, you need motivation. You need to get them started, but then you don't want to start them so fast so that they think, oh, this is a, a terrible sport. I remember when I was in high school growing up on the south side of Chicago and taking gym classes and the uh, running, there was, a, there was a balcony up above the basketball court where you could run uh, and, uh, Basically, the, if you did something wrong, if you made a mistake, the 
made the, uh, the, the teacher mad, he would send you up to the balcony and make you run laps. And that was true in some basketball teams as well. You know, uh, you miss a layup or something like that. The coach that makes you run laps or run around the court or run around the football field. So there was a time when running was seen as punishment uh, for people. In fact, I remember it being in a cross country um, race and seeing a gal with a t-shirt on that had on the back the motto, uh, my sport is your punishment. So uh, I think we try to find ways to begin running in some way, whatever works, just get started and uh, hope that you can motivate yourself to, uh, uh, to, to, to keep going. So um, in the marathon, part of the marathon is, um, is the taper before you actually run the marathon. Um, and in, in the book, you say that the taper is both a science and an art, which I was actually really hard, really happy to hear because I've often gotten it wrong. And, and so <laughs> the thing is when you're following a plan, you figure, well, I'm following the plan, so I've got to get it right. But I've gotten to the start line sometimes like just completely, you know, destroyed. I was tired. I'd start the run, um, like already feeling like I was in mile 25 of the race. <laughs> so, so what are some sort of high level guidelines to get the taper right for the marathon? Well, first of all, I got a decent training program. And uh, in my 18 week training programs, the first 15 weeks show a buildup to the point where you get into week 15 and your midweek run, the sort of long run, as we call it, is 10 miles and the final long run uh, before the taper starts uh, on the Saturday or Sunday is a 20 mile run. So when you consider that you've finished that week and you've run a 10 in the middle of the week and a 20 at the end of the week, even though you run at a slow pace because I told you so, that's probably the toughest workout that you've ever had. And I tell people, you know, that was hard, but actually if some people find that the marathon itself is easier uh, than they had expected simply because they tapered properly. So I have from that, I have a three week uh, taper period. Uh, the first week, the, the longest run was 12 miles. The second week, uh, eight miles. And then the third week, you go into the marathon itself with a, sort of a slide down um, from, from that point where you get lesser and lesser miles each day and skipping a few days. And three days before the marathon, I have runners rest, rest two days out. And one day out, I have to do just a little bit of jogging, just to loosen up, particularly if uh, you've flown from Montreal down to Boston, and now you're stiff from the flight, being crammed in those tiny seats that we have uh, these days. So I always used at the Boston Marathon, I would leave the hotel and jog down to the uh, Charles River, do some stretching, uh, striding on the, on, the, on the grass, do run some strides, which would be uh, runs of about 100, 150 at a marathon pace and then jog back. And that would be my sort of loosening up. And I remember one year at Boston, uh, I had gone down for my run along the Childs and I was heading back up to the hotel and along came a, a couple of Kenyan runners. And I was sort of gonna be, I thought I was gonna be embarrassed by how they were gonna run by me. They were running even slower than I was. And these are guys who the next day on TV, I would see in the front of the race, but they knew how to run slow and they knew that they, they needed, even though they training 100, 140 miles a week, they need to mm -hmm. slow down and taper for that final thing. 
So when I was in my sort of elite status, 10, month, 10 days was the popper uh, taper for me, but I was coming down off of 100 mile weeks. And so to drop down to even a eight mile run, eight, the eight, a run of an eight mile was my easy day. And uh, thankfully I, I learned, learned as I did um, I've done a lot of work with David Costell, who is the director and founder of the Human Performance Laboratory at Ball State University, and he did a lot of research on tapering. He found that in swimmers, because David was a world-class swimmer, uh, the swimmers benefited by six-week taper. Runners, I think, is a different sport, so I feel three weeks is sort of good. You'll maintain your fitness level but there's just a little bit more of a cushion than the, uh, the uh, 10 days that I allowed myself as a semi-elite runner. Uh, I also have a Boston Bound training program online and it's only about 12 or 13 weeks long. It starts after New Year's when people start focusing for a, an April race. And so I have them taper only for two weeks out before Boston because having qualified for Boston, all of them are very, very, experienced runners who are used to going out and running 40, 50 miles a, a week, whether they're training for a marathon itself. So I, but for the newcomers, the people that I don't I fail safe, I suggest a three week taper because I know that will usually uh, resolve in mac maximum results. Although uh, the runners who have followed my advice, they talk about taper madness because when you start running fewer and fewer miles, you start Mm -hmm. blowing up psychologically you say i want to go out and run i want to go out and run hell won't let me run today oh well yeah or, or you imagine all kinds of in injuries that's that's what i do i go oh i've got a pain in my leg or something in my back or suddenly these imaginary injuries start popping up exactly or you have we have uh you, you know we have some teammates that they like to they like to do little tests it's it's almost time for the race and they're kind of tapered um not quite but then they'll start you know oh, i'm just going to do a few kilometers fast and then you're yeah. like no but you're supposed to be in the taper and they say well i it's i'm not i'm not running uh, I'm not an elite running elite time, so it doesn't matter. So what would you say to those people? Well, again, don't make the mistakes I made because back when I was running my best times, my I would go out and I would run a 20-mile run on the Saturday or the Sunday before the marathon. Oh, and boy. I would cruise through it and I'd get to the marathon and had some pretty good luck. But looking back on it, I think I might have had better success if I, if I had uh, learned out how to do it. A real taper. I was able to learn also from coaching my uh, son who uh, went to school at Southwestern Michigan College and then a scholarship at Indiana University. And after he graduated from uh, Indiana, after running on the track team and cross country team, he decided he wanted, and he was running, working for a, a, uh, an accounting firm, Pete Marwick in the city of Chicago. So his days were pretty full during the week. So he wanted to qualify one last time for the Olympic trials coming up in 1984. So I put together a training program for him, which is a much better training program that I ever used. And also was the type of training program that you can see in Marathon, the ultimate training guide. But the thing, thing was, is that I just sort of, in his training, because he had a hard day from Monday to Friday work as an accountant, not to man, forget the matter, that his girlfriend about to be his wife was also an accountant, but he did have the weekend. 
So he had Saturday and Sunday with time off where he could waste as much time as possible on training. So we would put all the tough training into him for the weekend, all the long runs, the fast runs, interval running on the track, whatever it needed to do. And that was sort of the base of what I learned also worked well for uh, ordinary. I hate to use the word ordinary as a negative thing, but the, the regular runners, because they have real lives, but they do have Saturday morning off where they could go out for join a class, join a club, go out for a 20-mile run if necessary and become a better runner for us. So as I was going on, I was learning more and more and more things, but I was learning from the runners as much as they from me as to what works and what's going to get you to not only the uh, starting line of a marathon, but to the finish line, uh, which took me uh, three starts or four starts to accomplish. But I had company uh, because John Kelly, uh, the first John Kelly back in the 20s and 30s, he was on the 1948 Olympic team. Uh, old John Kelly, we used to tell him because there was another John Kelly who won Boston. Uh, he failed to finish his first three marathons and he went on to win it twice. So, uh, you know, we were learning back then, both uh, old John and I, I think, uh, with the better knowledge that is available today for runners, uh, would not have uh, made those fatal early errors, might have had a, a better first marathon. And I think all of the runners that at least follow, follow my way uh, do have better marathons because of all the stupid mistakes that I might have made uh, uh, coming up as a runner. For the long run, is 20 miles the magic number? 20 miles for the long run and how, how far out is that three weeks before four weeks before race day or several times or what's what's yeah, the I recipe think, i think 20 miles is enough i think you don't really need to go further particularly since i already told you i have you doing a 10 mile in the middle of the week so that sort of counts with a little bit of of, of miles going on and then plus also a pace run uh, uh before you do that long run as well so, you know, and I, I'm sort of preached to runners at different levels. I have training programs, two training programs, novice one, novice two for novice beginning runners, intermediate one, intermediate two, advanced one, and advanced two, plus a lot of other stuff, literally 50 programs up on my website. And I just feel that that's enough. I do know some coaches like to take uh, runners up to uh, the full 26 miles to give them the confidence uh, that they can go the distance. I remember being at a post-race party after the Chicago Marathon and having a conversation with a woman runner who had pulled a muscle at 24 miles in her first marathon, so failed to finish. And I was sort of thinking, well, you know, if you hadn't gone that far up to 26, but then you stopped at a Hal Higdon 20, uh, you might have kind of still pulled your mile at, muscle at 24, but you could have limped in or crawled in on your hands and knees to make it to the finish line. So uh, mm. that sort of has been, been my guide, but there's nothing magic about 20 miles other than it's a, a round number. Uh, you know, 30 kilometers is, a, is a, uh, a round number as well for those of you who live farther north than I do. So mm. um, I think you sort of find out what works for you and listen to the coaches, buy a book or two uh, and um, go online. And there's just a lot of information online. You gotta be careful because there's some Bad stuff too, but uh, in general, uh, you know, you go, I, I post a tip of the day and uh, if you just listen to my tip of the day for 18 weeks, you should be a, a better runner. Yeah, that's on Instagram, I think, yeah. right? I see those on Instagram. We have Instagram, we have Twitter. Uh, I've got two sets on Facebook. 
uh, a family program and a friend program. So I'm I'm all over the internet. Internet. I'm talking. We talk about we have Team Hal as we call ourselves. I have my kids and my grandkids are all involved in in putting out what we do online. And it's interesting to see how so many of them, even the non-runners, have have come in and sort of uh, uh, been part of what I do. And so the Instagram. I'm trying to remember whether Sophie. Selfie was handling it for a while, but then I think her cousin Angela uh, took over and neither of them would run a marathon, but they were able to be part of the running movement. Uh, Angela's great for hiking. So, and uh, Sophie went to Kalamazoo College and was a uh, champion Frisbee player. So you had to do some running between Frisbee collects. So I think the, the, the nice thing about running these days is it branches out and it absorbs people from all, all sports and all activities. I think the problem I have with, with my marathon efforts is um, closing it out. So I'm always interested in this 20-mile run because I tend to have most of my problems in the six miles that are left. And I suppose most marathon runners probably do. Um, I would say three-quarters of the marathons that I run, sometime where in those six miles I suddenly get uh, a pace problem. I just can't keep the pace going. Do you have any advice for an old guy who's still trying to solve the puzzle? Well, just sort of like uh, we, we try. And I've run 111 marathons, and quite a few of those weren't that brilliant. I've had three or four really, really good races, including that Boston Marathon that I, I mentioned before, uh, and also a race in New Zealand at the World Masters Championships where I had really gotten my fluid down, not only the fluids, but... Uh, the sports drinks too. So in that race, I had a friend feeding me Coca-Cola along the way and water, which is probably illegal if we'd gotten caught. Uh, but anyway, it gave me, I thought, an edge. So a lot of the uh, runners who I was racing against uh, had times that were literally five minutes slower than what I would have expected them to run because of the heat. But because I would stop and walk to drink too, by the way, that was another one of my secrets, I would walk to drink every time. Um, I was able to overcome that heat on a hot day and had uh, at the age of 49, actually, the second fastest marathon I'd ever run in my life. So I really figured it out by that time. That would have been uh, 1981 in Christchurch, New Zealand. And certainly that rated uh, uh, with all of my best races of all time. You know, you mentioned uh, that when you were a runner, you would do long runs as long as 30 miles. So now looking back, like, does that uh, fall into the bucket of being one of your mistakes or is there something beneficial? Like, is there any type of runner that might benefit from an over distance? Well, ultra marathoners probably, because they're going to have to run 50 K minimum in their races. So they probably need to do a little bit uh, more, a few more long runs than a, a normal runner might want to do. But at the same time, having talked with ultra marathoners, I discovered that they're really not running that many total miles uh, as the, the other runners. What they're doing is they're stretching their miles. So they'll get in on the weekend and they might do a three hour run on Saturday and follow it up with a six hour run on Sunday. So they're really being smarter. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to work it out. Uh, like I say, it took me, oh, five or 10 marathons before I got that one great, brilliant flash of light. So you have to really work at it and not expect that you're going to have that perfect race at the 
at, at every marathon. And you have to be willing to take risks also, risks not only in your training, uh, but in your racing. And uh, you may need to go a little bit faster at the start than I, I told you to run. But um, yeah, I think that, but certainly I do think there are the, the things that are necessary uh, for us. And the, I'll take the 30, that 20 mile run is, is pretty good. But yeah, you're right, getting back to your question, um, I did push out to as far as 30 because I was having trouble finishing the marathon like a lot of other runners. So the last three or four or five or six miles were gonna be painful. And I wondered whether by training up, uh, training up to 30 miles and 30 miles became a staple of my training, then the 26 mile run would be easier. Um, in retrospect, I think that was a training error, uh, although it was a training experiment, I guess. So I guess I'm allowed to do that. And I think I didn't really gain that much from going the extra miles and I was happier maintaining my level um, that at least the longest run being less than what might be people do. But I do know runners that uh, swear by going 26 miles in their, as their longest run in their, in, their, um, in their workouts and doing different things. And I think the more, more power to them, find out what works for you. You talked about uh, having a brilliant marathon because probably you solved you solved the puzzle that was hydration and food during the race, getting hydrated and probably getting some sugar as well. At what stage in the marathon do we need to start drinking and eating? Immediately or? Before immediately, in fact. Oh. Standing at the starting line about three minutes before the, the gun goes off. And uh, usually I would uh, take a drink of Gatorade or the more often it would be Coke or Pepsi. And one of the reasons why I took uh, Coke or Pepsi was that when you got a Coke, if you got a 12 ounce can or bottle of Coke, you knew what was in it, right? But if I had to go out and run in Sweden or someplace or Australia or New Zealand, I didn't know what they were handing me. I didn't know whether this sports drink, if it was a sports drink, was gonna be good for me, but I did know what I was getting in a, a, a Pepsi-Cola. So without accepting any payments from either of those companies, I found out what worked with, for me, and it became a routine. Frank Scherer, of course, had made Defiz Coke popular because he won the Olympic uh, marathon by, uh, by uh, using Defiz Coke as his uh, beverage of choice. So you, again, you need to find out what works and, and then just sort of follow that as your guide. I wonder if part of that um, that coke working is also the uh, the caffeine because caffeine is also performance enhancing substance. Yeah, that's true because again, some of the uh, research that Dave Kossel at uh, Ball State University did involved caffeine. Good runners improve their times by uh, using caffeine and allowing them to uh, burn more fat early in the race. I didn't know all the dictates, but he came, did the research on it, and uh, the next year it was a cover story on Runner's World magazine uh, with all these uh, coffee cups on it. Uh, so I never was much of a, a, a coffee drinker growing up. I just never really cared for that. It's only in my old age I find out that uh, what I now do, I like to take bike rides, and I've got several favorite bike rides with a, a coffee shop in the middle, so that's sort of my... Um, my pleasure these days in my running or, or mm -hmm. biking. My wife and I will bike to our favorite coffee shop uh, and, uh, and stop and have a donut and a coffee. And as long as the nutritionists aren't watching, uh, it becomes part of 
a routine that uh, is part of my lifestyle more than my my training training programs. Sounds great. It was a training program anyway. I'm I'm signing up for the Hal Higdon Coffee Shop training program. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, one of the things I do like to do is trail running. I know that there are some people who don't like trail running very much. I don't know who that could be. Neither do I. Don't I don't either. Um, <laughs> what what sort of role can trail running have in marathon training? Is there a role for it? Yeah, I think injury prevention. Because if you uh, run on soft surfaces, I think you condition your lower body to accept the wiggles that you get running trails and you don't have the same footfall every every time. And I, I suggest that maybe, I never timed or wrote down in my diary, but I would suspect that 50 or 75% of all of my training was done on soft surfaces, golf courses, uh, trails. That, I had some favorite trails that lead up to a, a nearby town and I'd try to um, use those trails as much as possible and of course, it's difficult for a beginning runner to go out and run a rocky course uh, and without getting injured. But I think if you can build up your your trail running, uh, you can sort of. There's another form of injury prevention. And uh, I had a period of about four years when I uh, coached the track team and cross country team at the local high school because nobody at the school wanted to coach it. And uh, my final year there, we had like five really good runners on the team, five very talented runners. And then there was a huge gap of about li literally three or four minutes before the sixth runner was about to come in. And so uh, I was running along uh, at the State Park, Indiana Dunes State Park on a sandy trail behind our fifth runner. And she did a missed footfall. And it's like her ankle went like 90 degrees. And I winced and I thought, oh, there goes the season. But she just kept running. And the reason was that she had been trained over all of the train running that we had done during the early part of the season so that she had the muscular strength to resist a little twitch like a 90 degree uh, bend on her, on, her, on her ankle. So we went on and uh, had a very successful year finishing with our, with our group of five. Mm, okay, I guess injury prevention is important. Um, the, the one thing though that... Uh, trail running doesn't give you is, um, you know, the ability to, to run the pace of the marathon. So like when you have a workout for marathon pace or something like that, then that would be difficult to do on a trail because it usually goes up or down and, um, it's soft. So how, how do you incorporate the trail running into the overall program? Like, would you, uh, take the easy runs into the trail and maybe leave the workouts on the track or the road or how would, um, how do you think is best to structure that? Any and all, um, because you could literally take any day off and go to a nice asphalt flat area and, uh, do a pace run. Uh, on maybe on a course uh, that you've raced on before. So then go back to the trails for the, the rest of the week. So uh, I think you can really modify it. You can do your long runs certainly on a, a trail. Uh, you can do your short runs. You can do sprints on the golf course or what I like to do on the golf course with strides. I would go to the golf course early in the morning and do strides, stride being a, a short distance, 100, 150 meters at race pace, which is a relatively slow time when you consider it's not 26 miles, it's only 150 um, meters. So I think, you know, you can vary your training that way. And if you do so, I think you, the best of all worlds uh, will then come to you. 
So I used to love to go out with our group uh, to Indiana Dunes State Park, which I've mentioned. Uh, we had our local running club and we'd all show up at about eight in the morning on a weekend and uh, 10 or 15 of us. And that was the best running of the, of the week. So uh, I just love trail running and I would, would like to see more runners do it, but you have to get at it gradually. You can't go out and run a rocky, rocky trail like you, you get out in the mountains if it's the first workout you've had on trails. So you have to build up to that gradual path. I used to love to, to run barefoot too, which I would do uh, on the golf courses as well. I'd run to the golf course about, I had a golf course about a mile away. So I, one of my workouts would be to run that distance, the golf course, sit down, take the shoes out and then do the mm -hmm. running on the golf course itself. And I even ran several races uh, on uh, barefoot on the rubberized tracks that we have. One of my best races at the Crystal Palace in London, 5,000 meters where I set an American record breaking 50 minutes as a master runner um, running barefoot. So I, I, but I was doing it for fun. Oh, wow. I wasn't mm -hmm. doing it because I thought it would make me go faster. I just enjoyed doing it that way. I have to say that I I love barefoot running. Like there was this one track um, uh, workout we were doing and it just started pouring and I had these shoes on and they started to have like puddles in the shoes. You know, you have that squishy feeling and uh, my foot was all sliding inside because it was wet and uh, and so I, I took everything I off. There. Yeah, I took it. I took off my shoes and I think like it, it felt like I had a new, I don't know, a new set of legs. I, I, I ran much faster without the wet, sloppy shoes. And it was a lot of fun. Like it felt so good because like I felt you were going free. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess on the um, on the topic of doing speed work, uh, I like I personally love doing speed work on a track. I don't know what it is, but it, I feel I just feel fast and efficient. Um, but then you know, newer runners, I, I feel like they try to avoid it because they. I guess it's it's intimidating or. Um, I don't know, I, maybe they don't like running around in circles for, for an hour. Um, but in, um, in the book, you do list 10 reasons why runners should run speed workout on a track, but maybe can you just say, uh, you know, how you would convince a newer runner that maybe doesn't think they need to go on the track because they're not fast or, uh, maybe they're intimidated by it. How would you get them to, to go out and run on the track? Probably they shouldn't go onto the track if they're a new runner. I would work up and get myself to the point where I could run at least a 5K or a 10K race before wandering over to the track, which I admit it can be intimidating until you've been there a while and done there a while. When uh, we lived in Chicago, my wife and I, for a long time, and I uh, went to the University of Chicago Graduate School, and a lot of my training was done at the, at the track at Stag Field. And uh, basically training with some pretty fast runners. And it's just something that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I really sort of was ahead of the, the game. Uh, I sort of traced my knowledge of the sport being back into 1952. I was a junior at Carleton College, not the Canadian Carleton, but the American Carleton College. And I went out to the NCAA championships, ran the steeplechase, disqualifying for the Olympic trials by only four seconds. But during the time I was out there, I was sitting out in the grass with a three or four runners from San Diego State. We started chatting and uh, they mentioned their, some of their training. And I was astounded because I used to run 
cross country and at the end of the cross country season, I take a month or two off before the start of the track season because there's no reason to continue to train if you don't have any meets. And then I would run the track season and then go home for the summer and not run a single step. And the guys from San Diego State taught me that they were running 12 months a year. And I thought, oh, well, maybe if I tried that, it might help me improve as a runner. And I think improving as a runner is the whole thing. Uh, this was at a period when Americans had not quite figured out uh, that interval training was something that they could do. I was sent over to Germany. I spent a year and a half in Germany with the U.S. Army. And one of the main coaches there was Waldemar Gerschler, uh, a German who in the 30s was coaching uh, Rudolf Harburg, who set a world record for the 800 meters that wasn't broken for 20 years. And Harburg, uh, excuse me, Gerschler was a a guidance for interval training where you would run a fast lap on the track, then run a slow lap on the track, then another fast lap on the track. And you might run anywhere from 10 to 20 uh, of those uh, interval tr track workouts. And that sort of made a, a, a huge difference in me in the one year between when I landed in Germany and discovered the, the training programs of Waldemar Kirschel, I knocked a whole minute off my 5,000 meter time. Um, which is a lot of time. You know, a minute for, for running marathons isn't much, but for, for 10,000 meters, that's quite a bit of time. So I sort of got into interval training naturally long before any Americans did. It was only in the end of the 50s and of the 60s that the Americans figured it out too, at which point we suddenly had some runners who were able finally to compete at the, at the Olympic level after some years, literally decades when the Americans would be lucky to get in the top 20 of the Olympic marathon. So it was, it was a wake-up call for me and sort of, as you've probably sensed by now, I've sort of learned by doing a period of period of time. But if for a beginner to take a beginner to the track and, and uh, you know, it's the first time the track, they might get intimidated by all the fast runners, particularly if somebody shouted at them, get out of the inside lane, and they didn't know why they were being forced to go out in lane number six, uh, but you know, even the slow fast runners do a lot of running on in lane six, but I used to love to go to the track at the University of Chicago because there are so many other sports that were there. There were football players throwing the football in the middle of the infield uh, uh, and you had uh, soccer players on another field right nearby. And it was just fun to be part of all this activity. And I think if you can get into it, if you can learn to love the track, I think you can you can really enjoy it. The other thing is, is that the track is where you go to if you want to find a coach as well. So if you're mm -hmm. trying to improve yourself by getting a, a good coach, and there are a lot of coach for adult runners these days uh, that can, can help help piece it. That's where you get it. And that's also where you can find training partners too. So that when you do go on those uh, trail runs that we talked about, you have somebody to go with it, with it for you. And one thing, of course, I failed to mention when we were talking about trail running is you have to change your mindset because typically if you're running on the roads, training on the roads, oh, I'm going to go out for a five mile run today, or I'm going to go out for a 10 mile run today. Well, if you're running on the trails, there probably aren't any mile markers there. So now you're running for time. So it becomes, okay, I'm doing a 45 minute workout, or this is my long run, but my long run is a three hour run. It's not a run of 20 miles. It's a run of three, four miles. So you learn as you do and you become a better runner and running becomes part of your life. That's exactly what Liz does when we go uh, running the trails, Hal. She says, well, we haven't done very many kilometers. 
Yeah. You say, well, that's not the point. I have a hard time with that. We've been running for three hours now. <laughs> but in terms of doing stupid things, when I was experimenting with my own abilities, uh, on occasion I uh, would run 50 times 200 meters on, on a track. Or on another occasion, uh, 70 times 300 meters. And I was experimenting to see if that did me any good. And I quickly learned that no, it didn't. So I went back to more logical training. I, my typical <laughs> interval training would be uh, back when I was a pretty good runner, used to be 20 times 400 meters. And I'd start at maybe 70 seconds per quarter mile and then work it down to I was running in, in 60 seconds or faster. And that, that was one of the things that allowed me to become a much, much better runner. But if I were doing it again, I don't think I'd go as far as 20. I'd think that 10 miles, excuse me, 10, 10 400 meters runs is plenty. Okay. So you actually, you mentioned uh, pool running at the beginning of the conversation. And uh, I do remember reading about pool running in your book and how, how beneficial it can be, not just for when you're injured. Uh, but I remember the only time I've done pool running was when I was injured and I hated it. Like the time passed by so slowly. I went with a friend uh, one time, which was, you know, it was a little more bearable, but it's never something that I would have done if I didn't have to. I later actually met uh, another runner that adored pool running. Even when she wasn't injured, she would replace one of her runs during the week with a pool run. Like to this day, I don't understand it, but um, you actually suggest a bit the same thing because runners can boost their volume of training with pool running. So um, what makes pool running better than any other cross training? Like let's say cycling or. Well, there's no impact. So you're not banging your feet against the ground 5,000 times or something in a long, long run. So you can go into the pool and there's uh, very little stress. Uh, now I'm speaking to you down from Florida and I'm about, I'm going to guess this, let's speak Canadian. I'm about 300 meters away from a heated outdoor pool. And mm -hmm. uh, my wife uh, is in that pool literally every day practically because she's part of a swim class, an aerobics class. And I usually go over there at the same time and grab one of the lanes that uh, the swimmers normally use. And I will run on the run in the water uh, as, as, as a workout. Uh, now, unfortunately, the pool we have, it's more for recreational swimmers. So there's no deep part of the pool because if there were a deep part, I would recommend that you get a, a vest, a flotation vest, get out in the deep water and then mimic the running, running, running movements. I, I was talking to you about my podiatrist friend, Megan Leahy. <clears throat> and when she was in high school, uh, he, she's had a series of injuries and she uh, recovered by uh, going in to the pool. And uh, instead of running, uh, she would do pool running. And she found out that running in the deep end with a west vest on was too easy. So she just went out there and treaded water and she literally came out of the pool the day before the qualifying sectional championships, um, won the race and went on to uh, go down to the state meet second overall. Basically, she had two or three weeks of running, but the whole period leading up to it was that time in the pool training herself with her mother sitting by the pool, helicopter mom, uh, with a stopwatch. So <laughs> she, she was training and, you know, I think we need to find things that work for us. So I probably spend more time on my bike, again, going to coffee shops uh, than I do anymore uh, with my running, even though I'm only, again, 
500 meters, I guess it is in Canadian, from a, a nice flat uh, beach where I can go out and run, run barefoot. So I try to find things that interest me and I can motivate myself. So I like to do something literally every day uh, to improve my fitness and health, which is more my focus now than merely running fast, uh, fast race, race times. You, you mentioned in your book, well, your book has training programs in it and they're all uh, almost all 18 weeks, but you do mention that you could actually do a shorter marathon training program than 18 weeks. I guess if you come in with a base, base mileage that permits that, how, how short a program if you're already sort of run fit 12 weeks? I, interestingly, I just got a question about a week or two from somebody who was using one of my training programs online and I have a senior training program and it's only eight weeks long and uh, it, it builds up the mileage to a, uh, a long run I believe it's 20 miles two weeks out before the marathon and uh, this one woman wrote me she found me on my email address and wondered how come it is only eight miles and I said well this isn't really I'm telling you you can train for a marathon you need weeks it's for a senior marathoner an experienced runner somebody who's been doing the mileage all their life, who normally goes out and runs 40 and 50 mile weeks. I'm just showing them a pattern. So for this 80, eight week period, you can focus on running the marathon and maybe run three or four or five or 70 uh, marathons in a week. So I think there's a variety there. It really depends on the, the, the level you start. So a beginning runner uh, would take my novice one uh, training program and the first week is a long run of six miles. So hopefully they'll be in fit enough shape. Maybe they've done a little bit of base training before that first week so they can finish that six miles. Might have to walk half the distance, but you begin at that level. And uh, so I try to provide a number of uh, training programs that aren't even race oriented. A winning winter training program, for instance, that includes uh, only about three days of running a week, but includes running on a treadmill running outdoors and also gotta love this uh, cross-country skiing and uh, I know later in my career I took up the sport of cross-country skiing and, and just loved the sport and I uh, just had a lot of fun fun doing and I have to tell you a Canadian anecdote um, I, I went up I wanted to compete in a I think it was a 30 kilometer cross-country ski race in Ottawa so I jumped on the plane and uh, landed in Ottawa. Unfortunately, my skis and boots did not land in Ottawa. <laughs> oh, no. So I had to go to one of my good Canadian friends and borrow a pair of skis and boots. And it was the most horrible race that I'd ever had, but at least I finished it. So we sort of um, do what we need to do and um, have fun doing it. Here's our chance for a free consultancy with Hal Higdon. Liz and I, you know, Liz and I are trying to run a three-hour marathon. That's our ambition. And we're pretty trained up in terms of, you know, our, let's say, base mileage. You know, we've, we, all, we both run five times a week, and we would do long runs of 25K, something like that. So uh, what, what would that be, like 15 miles, something like that? So what, what program do we need in how many weeks, Hal? And you're doing the marathon? Yeah, and, and, how we, soon? And, we, and we want to run sub three hours. Should we but, do I mean, how, many, how much time do you have? It's in October. You have as much, to, all the time in the world. Oh, yeah. So you got to need two or three programs. Um, and I'd, I'd at least have one of those programs, if you have the time, which would focus on speed training. Uh, maybe a 5K or 10K training program. See if you can handle the, 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 the advanced program that sends you to the track like once a week 
and just work on your speed and trying to pick up your basic speed. And we're, uh, speed. We're coming down to the best time to do it. In the spring, though, the weather is warming up, but it's not that hot. So you can do some speed work, run your 10K, and then maybe you get into another program, uh, even my senior program that I was just talking about that has a lot of mileage in it. So you have some good base mileage uh, to build up your strength, endurance, and then hopefully if there's enough 18 weeks uh, leading up to the marathon, then you can have a, a, a good program, maybe novice, excuse me, advanced one that contains one day of speed work and advanced two, that's pretty tough, uh, that contains two days of speed work. And really advanced two really is the, the tough one. So you need to sort of pick the one that's going to work for you, work for your level, and maybe modify it a little bit uh, uh, based on all the other things you will learn by running the training programs, spring, summer, and fall. Because if you do the uh, all that, then you uh, follow the program and you get the tips that I give you every morning on my Facebook page, then you should be able to uh, have a go at uh, three hours. What about finding the right pace? I mean, obviously me and Alan, we, we know we need to run a four, 415 per kilometer because we want to run sub three hours. But in general, how, how would people decide what pace they're training for for their marathon if they were, let's say, newer to that distance or they're trying their first one? Well, the novice runners, they don't have a pace because they've never run a marathon. You might be able to get a little bit of a hint if you run a half marathon and uh, you can use some of the training schedules that can predict what you might be able to do a marathon. Predicts what it's doing, it doesn't always work that way. I mentioned my grandson, Jake, who just ran a 124 half marathon in a rock and roll half marathon in DC. Mm -hmm. I I almost hated to tell him that that translates to three hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, you get into the last six miles and suddenly what did that program tell me I should have done? So basically, it's a matter of um, doing a certain amount of training. And most of my advanced or intermediate advanced programs include pace training. So you learn to to find the pace you want to run. Obviously, you know your pace because you want to run three hours. So Better for worse, you're going to hit that three-hour pace and take it up into the 20th and 21st mile and hope that you can keep it for the last three or four or five miles. And otherwise, you come across <laughs> this line on your hands and knees in mm. honor, at least. But at least you yeah. did it and you tried. Sometimes you need to take risks. Ah, uh, well said. So, and what about what about fueling? So, you did talk about fueling and how you used Coke for your fueling in the book. Um, you mentioned that we can consume up to ninety grams of carbs per hour, and that'll help our performance during the marathon. But I don't know if you have any, you know, because you've coached a lot of people and now there are so many products out there. There's yeah. like the Morton gel, the Goo gel, the You Can. I was going to suggest uh, the gels. If I had one thing that I wish had been available when I was a younger runner, it would have been gels that I could take like I do now every fourth or fifth mile and just provide that little hundred calories or one mile of, of more effort. Yeah, so exactly. Okay. Are there any like specific brands that you see that, you know, a lot of your athletes use and tolerate well, or, or you haven't really noticed? Well, the one thing you probably need to do is discover that whether the marathon you're going to has a br- brand of something that they give out to all runners. At the Honolulu Marathon, for example, because Jack Scaff was a fan of Frank Shorter, he gave out defizzed Coke uh, in the beginning of the Honolulu Marathon. I think he's probably switched by now. So you find out what 
the marathon of choice uh, has for a drink, and then you train using that drink. Other than that, what you do is you, you've got 18 weeks, you've got 18 long runs, well, 15 long runs, you've got 15 opportunities to try a different gel, a different drink, and find out what works for you. And maybe, you know, too much Gatorade, you're going to be throwing it up on the mm-hmm. sidewalk, uh, but too little is not going to get you to the finish line, too. And some people just hate the taste of gels, and if it's going to nauseate you, you've got to find another system. But like I say, you've got eight, 15 weeks to, to figure it out and find out what works best for you, uh, regardless of what they might have said in Brunner's World was the, the best uh, substitute in all the kingdom. Uh, you know, it's what works for you that counts the most. Thank goodness you didn't uh, get caught endorsing somebody's product there. Uh, right. that, that was good. Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned during your book that I am very keen on is trying to keep yourself focused and trying to stay focused on your running, which as you get more tired in the marathon, that gets very difficult to do. Have you got some advice about trying to keep yourself focused while you're running? New runners, when they get into a marathon, quite often they dissociate. They sort of think of beautiful sunsets and this and that. They high-five the crowd, etc. Anything to take their mind off what they're doing, which is sort of maybe painful if they haven't trained well, uh, but it certainly gets them out of breath. But if you really want to achieve success, you really have to associate and uh, find out every step literally is going to be essential to your kind. You know, if you let your mind drift, you subconsciously are liable to drift off the pace too, so you're going to lose time. So you can't afford to do that. Uh, One of the best ways I found in teaching yourself to uh, to focus would be to go to the track. I guess we talked about uh, interval training. And typically, if I was in a training cycle, when I was leading, look, leading up to a marathon, and I knew I wanted to focus on it, I would go to the track, and I would start running 400-meter repeats. And invariably, what would happen, I'd get over on the back stretch at about 150 meters into the run, and my mind would flip off, and I'd be looking at the scenery around the track and I wouldn't be focusing my mind and then I would retire to uh, return the second week or the third or the fourth and I would discover that I could take it a little bit further than 150 meters maybe up to the 200 meter point 300 400 and now you're at the you focused for the whole quarter mile and if you can teach yourself to do that uh, on the track you can you can take that to the marathon course and it will help you by focusing, become a, a much, a much better, a much, much faster runner as well. Okay. Do you have a mantra? Do you use mantras when you run? I didn't really, but there was. I'm trying to think of the name of the coach at San Jose State up in California, Bud Winter, uh, who is a coach of uh, some top-notch sprinters, uh, world record type sprinters at at that school, and he suggested mantras as humming, you know, like calm, calm, calm. So I think, you know, all these things are, are worth, worth playing with. And uh, I remember going to a marathon in Cleveland uh, one time where I thought I'd play with my, my breathing. And so for the first half of the marathon, I would three, st- three, three steps and in, breath in, three steps, breath out. And about, I got about halfway through the marathon. I couldn't hold it any longer. So I had to go to two and two. So again, I'm always trying to find a way that works for me and what works for me may not necessarily work for every runner. 
in one of the later chapters, you talk about recovery. And uh, I mean, you know, we as runners, uh, we do learn a lot about recovery and how important it is between workouts, you need to recover, you need to have recovery weeks, but you even mention and and you described me perfectly after the marathon, <laughs> after the marathon is over, I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm just going to lie here. And, and all of the recovery techniques that I had before, they all go out the window. But you say that it's important to keep on focusing on recovery. And when you cross the finish line of your marathon, it's an opportunity to do some more recovery. <laughs> so, exactly. so why is that so important? Uh, yeah, Dave Costle again, did the research on that. He found out that your body is ready to absorb carbohydrates immediately after you stop running. So basically you get across the finish line, you smile for any cameras, you let them hang the bling around your neck. And then you start looking for the, but you find the sports drink and water that you want. You start taking the carbs in and uh, let that work in your system for a while and then find some place to, uh, to lie down. I remember one of the times when I was at Boston and um, I crossed the finish line and I was really dead and I sort of staggered over to a, a bench and sat down and wondering if I was ever going to be able to get up and cursing the fact that I had picked a hotel that was gonna be another uh, half mile, mile from where I was. But after a while, I started naturally recovering. I was sort of, because of the fluids that I had taken also, because of solid, some solid foods that had been handed me in the, in the place. And I got up and I started to walk. And the walking that I did, it was quite lucky that I was a mile out uh, from the finish line because that easy run walking that I did I think allowed me to stretch my legs and to recover more fast, fa fa faster than, than normal. And of course, there are some systems that you can use, some uh, mileage you can use. I do have, again, free on my website, some recovery programs, recovery for novice, intermediate, advanced runners. It's a five-week program, the first three days being no running, no running, no running. And only on the first weekend, you can get out maybe run with your buddies and do a little bit of a, a celebrating over the race and over a gradual period of time, those five weeks, you finally work yourself up to a five week um, uh, 10K or race at a short, short distance, 5K, 10K. And I'm gonna suggest that if people followed that recovery program, they would bounce back real quick and hopefully they don't have another marathon in five weeks as some of my friends do, but oh well. Mm -hmm. During, during our talks, uh, Hal, you mentioned Boston quite a few times. You've had some great performances at Boston, but what is it that's so special about Boston? Well, it's the oldest race in America, recognizing that there's one up in Canada that's two years uh, older. Uh, so I think it's a tradition. The, the Boston Marathon, they, the BAA people went to the first Olympic Games in Athens, where they had a uh, race of about 20 or 25 miles, and the the VA people thought that looked like so much fun. Why don't we do one uh, in, in our own hometown, which I did the following year with uh, 15 runners, I believe, started, 10 of them uh, finished. And uh, so that was really the beginning of the marathon. And, um, and I think that the, the Boston resonates with a lot of, uh, of runners because of the historical uh, precedent for it. And of course, uh, the fact that uh, in the, right around 1970, uh, the BAA decided because they were trying to control the size of the field, they put qualifying standards in because they wanted to 
control the field under 1,000 runners. From that point on, you had to do a qualifying standard, which meant first qualifying standard was you had to even had finished a marathon uh, at some point before. But without realizing what they were doing, they were setting up a great goal and motivating runners to say, okay, I realize if I can get that qualifying time, it means I am a real runner. So that became the motivating factor to the point where Boston at BAA looked at the uh, their race uh, a decade or so later, and now it was up to 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 runners with the uh, so many runners on the course that they couldn't even get to the finish line. There, there was a line literally in one of the races back at that time that stretched out a couple of hundred meters back to runners waiting to be able to cross the finish line. One of the officials who was coming up with a notepad and a pencil and telling him, you would have run 345, you would have run 346. <laughs> so um, Boston was, uh, w- was great for all those reasons, but I also have to um, nod to uh, uh, the, the Ronda Bay race in Hamill, Ontario, one of my favorite mm-hmm. races that I have done, and which was uh, started two years before the Boston Marathon. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which would have been 1994, I guess, and uh, about 30 kilometers. And so I ran, one of my best friends as a runner was Gordon Dixon, uh, who lived in Hamilton, Ontario. We were good, friendly rivals and everything like that. And he talked me into coming up and running around the bay, which I did. Uh, and we ran together up until two miles to go. And uh, when he picked up the pace and, and left me, and I figured, well, you know, it's only two miles. At that time, uh, runners couldn't take prize money. But at around the bay, you'd finish line, and one of the officials at the club would come around with little envelopes that had Canadian money in it, uh, which they would uh, trade for American money. So uh, uh, that was one of the few races we actually got paid uh, paid for running. So anyway, Gordo got first, I got second. And then uh, before the 100th Boston Marathon, uh, as we went, we went out to Boston about a month before the 100th anniversary, I had to stop and run uh, Hamilton one, one more time, and, um, and uh, we did run, and that was the year when a Russian freighter was coming towards the bridge uh, out around halfway through the course, honked his horn, and so the bridgekeeper had to lift the bridge, and all the Kenyan runners in the front had to stop they turned around and started coming back to the finish line. <laughs> oh, no. I was far, far behind them at that point. I see all these really fast runners coming back to work. And I think, what happened? What happened? And it was really sort of the bridge takers got a fall. In fact, the Russian, Russian captain said later that if he'd known, he would have, could have waited out there for, for about 10 or 15 minutes for all the runners to pass. So I, I was good at running fast as I had the first time I ran around the bay and slow the second time. So we just had a lot of fun uh, being there. You're quite right, Hal. Uh, absolutely right. The first round of the bay, I just looked it up on the internet while we were listening to you. First round of the bay was in 1894. If I remember rightly, on the T-shirts for the round of the bay, it actually says mm-hmm. on the T-shirt, older than Boston. Yeah. It does. Yeah. But having said that, I've done five or six Boston marathons, and I have to say there is something special about the atmosphere in Boston on, on Boston Marathon Day. And for anybody who has an ambition or is thinking about trying to qualify for, for Boston or go to Boston, you must do it. Try to do it uh, if you have access, you know, if you can make the qualifying time, if you can get there, you must do it at one time. It's, uh, you know, it's mecca for runners. It really is. Agreed. 
So I guess, um, you know, you've run Boston and um, many other races and you've run very fast and now you're still running, but you're not going to set any more records. Uh, what still keeps you passionate about running? It's just something that's part of my life. And uh, I never realized that when I went out for track in high school, I went out for, tra- I was going to uh, the University of Chicago lab, lab school, uh, U-High as they called it. And they only had two years of high school before you went into the, the main university. And I thought before I graduated from this school as a sophomore, I'd win a letter in something. So I went out for track and discovered that I had some latent talent. I was good enough to place fourth in the, uh, the private school league meet. Uh, but then I had to transfer to another school. And because of that, I was ineligible for a year. So I went a year without doing any running at all. Finally came back uh, my senior year at high school and uh, didn't even run cross country. Was too busy playing touch football with my buddies, but did go out for track without as much success. But uh, I figured out I was pretty good. And and when I went away to college, I discovered that I had some latent talent. And uh, it sort of set me into my, (coughs) excuse me, life goal and uh, did something that almost nobody else was doing at the time. I just continued running after I graduated from from college. You know, 99% of the people who ran track and cross country back then, they graduated from college and it, it stopped or graduated from high school and, and it stopped as well. But today people just continue on and uh, running becomes part of their life. They might have to uh, half abandon it a little bit while they get their career act together, but then they're into their 70s like you and now you're coming back and discovering the sport again. The book, Marathon, The Ultimate Training Guide, is a fantastic book, and we'll give our, Liz and I will give our overviews in, in a minute. Do you have, but do you have anywhere that you'd prefer that our listeners went to get the book? Uh, does it matter? Um, should they go to your website, or uh, can they go anywhere they like? Would you like to direct them somewhere to get a copy? Yeah, of we book? used to sell books off my website. It just became too much, too much work as it became popular and popular, just mm-hmm. we were sending too many packages out. So basically I recommend people, uh, they can go to uh, Barnes and Noble or Books a Billion or uh, um, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, the, whatever the local. Uh, the other thing is, of course, is the book's available online. So you can don't have to cross that border and get uh, hooked with uh, tariffs. So you can, you can buy the book offline. The only downside of that is that the, tar- the charts don't quite translate as well. But then again, you can go to my website for the charts and read all the uh, the material in it. And even for people who had might have had the first and second and third, fourth editions, uh, there's so much different in in the in the latest edition. It's almost like buying a new book on running. So, do you believe there'll be a sixth edition eventually? <clears throat> I don't know. I like to, at my age. I'm not sure if I hang around for a sixth edition. I'm <laughs> quite happy with the fifth fifth edition and what it is. Although my books have a tendency of getting uh, reprinted, I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't always write on running. I was actually a mainstream journalist for most of my career. And one of the books, uh, my more popular books, was a book called The Crime of the Century about the Leopold and Loeb case in Chicago. Uh, the killing by two young, wealthy kids of a, a 14-year-old boy in, uh, in, South, in South Chicago. And, um, and that book is coming up to the 100th anniversary of the crime. And 
all of a sudden the University of Illinois Press wants to reprint it. So um, some of my books just don't never go out of print. Marathon, the Ultimate Training Guide seems to be in that same same character. I, I suspect because you now developed uh, in your family a complete running dynasty of uh, children and grandchildren that uh, it will probably go for, uh, you know, 20 editions long after we're all gone. <laughs> so um, what are you up to now? Is there something that you're working on? Well, mainly what I'm working on is uh, putting Team Hal together, basically enlisting the family to uh, be part of the uh, activity that I have uh, online mostly, realizing there's going to come a time when I'm not going to be around for a while. And so getting my sons and daughters uh, and, and <clears throat> grandchildren able to maintain uh, what I offer to runners for as, as long as can be. So uh, we'll just see how that goes. That's great. That's a fantastic project. And I'm sure like all the future users of the website will appreciate that. And for anybody who wants to follow you, um, the place to the place to connect would be your website, HalHigdon.com. Yeah, go to HalHigdon.com or you can go to Facebook and just search by, for my name. Same thing with Twitter and uh, Instagram, which is run by my grandkids. And uh, I've asked them, are we supposed to go to TikTok or is that a little bit too rude of a, a site. So who knows what'll happen in the next five, 10 years online, but I hope that I'm uh, my, my training programs will continue to be part of it. I'm sure they will. So th thanks for all your time, Hal. Uh, is absolutely fantastic. Um, what a legacy that you've, you've, you've left future generations um, in terms of, uh, you know, all the, all the experience. You know, we don't have to go through the learning curves that, that you you went through you've you've written it all down and uh we can skip over the uh the, the mistakes that you made and we can get on making our own mistakes right exactly well it's a pleasure to be with the two of you yeah we're going to give our our view just just a little summary of our view on the book our comments on the book it's a great book founded in a wealth of tried and tested practices and techniques and, and does not seem dated in the least you know you hear 1993 and you go oh it'll be tweaked but in fact it just feels fresh and modern like a brand new book. It's a book you can read from start to finish or you can dip in on specific subjects if you wish to fill in any gaps that you've got in particular. Read the trail running section, Liz. It's great that you survey your readers about topics during the book as well. So we get a series of opinions from runners as well as, you know, the official scientific version. We get the from the street version, which is a great addition, I think, to the, to the book. A couple of my take-homes are start slow, which is great advice and that there is no one defined way to do it only general principles you have to work out what works from you from a detailed standpoint if you want to learn how to do a marathon for the first time or improve as an experienced marathoner or simply re-energize yourself for your running i think this book this book works great for all of those possibilities I will just start by saying that there is an impressive range of topics in this book. Um, it, it really goes from the beginning and even past the end of the marathon to like recovering after the marathon and how to train to come back and, you know, be ready for your next training cycle. If you're going to read only read one book, then this, this is the one because of all the topics that it touches on. Of course, for listeners of this podcast, you'll probably just use it as a starting point and then read lots of other books to go in 
depth uh, on each particular facet. Like, you know, you have whole books just on mental performance and mental training. Uh, but this book touches on those things as well. I really liked uh, chapter five, which outlines the 10 marathon truths. I, I thought it was a, a good reminder of the foundation uh, runners need to work on to succeed at the marathon. I guess just to give you guys a little preview, uh, no, uh, truth number two, rest days do keep you healthy. So that's a good reminder to all of us. Truth number seven, good nutrition makes good runners. Yeah, then the, the one that I really liked, truth number nine, uh, tapering is both an art and a science, which uh, reminded me of all the times I failed at tapering. Um, and that I still have, uh, I still have room for improvement on that, on that front. So once again, thank you, Hal. Thanks for allowing me to come on uh, your podcast. Oh, more than <laughs> welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to the publisher, Penguin Random House, for providing a review copy of the book. A big thank you to Hal Higdon for spending his time with us today and for giving Liz and I a a little piece of private consultation during the podcast. Um, if you'd like to leave us some feedback about how we can improve the podcast or you want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in a future episode, please leave us a comment on our social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are Reviews underscore Running. Please also follow us on social media to find out about new episodes and when they are released. Or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And lastly, thank you to all the people who bought us a coffee via our Buy Me A Coffee page. Um, we're not getting caffeine overdosed. We're being very careful about taking those coffees gradually. Thanks and bye. Bye for now.